It's well known and understood that identity is a very complex, multi-layered concept that takes years to understand and develop. But something that we don't often consider is what happens when two parts of our identity conflict with each other. What do we do when there is dissonance between what we believe and what we've been taught? My name is Amy Patterson, and during this podcast, I'm going to explore how family plays a role in identity formation, as well as the importance of consistency in the values of those closest to us in our lives. The dictionary defines family as a group of people living in a house together consisting of parents and children. In my experience, family goes way, way beyond this simple definition. Family are responsible for your earliest socialization, your beginning of understanding between what is right and what is wrong. The concepts of sharing, listening, communication are all introduced with the people that you consider your family. My family consists of my mom, my dad, my younger sister Kelly, and my older sister Erica. From an early age, it wasn't hard for me to understand my family's core values. While my dad was an only child raised by a single mom, my mom was raised in a strict Catholic household with six total kids and two working parents. The combination of these two very different upbringings made my family's values Catholic, but a little less intense. Even though it was less intense, it still was very much present all throughout my childhood. We would go to church every Sunday, celebrate all the Catholic holidays, Christmas, Easter. We would participate in Lent, and every year my family would sit down and we would all discuss what we were giving up for Lent and how that was going to make us more faithful. And on top of all of this, there were the Catholic values of being a good Samaritan, turning the other cheek, and always helping those in need. We were very often asked to consider what would Jesus do when reflecting on our own behavior. And this was meant to have us think about whether or not what we did was kind or whether or not what we did was inclusive, respectful, um, honest, because these were all things we were taught to be the values of Jesus Christ and values that the Catholic Church held important. It wasn't until I was around 10 or 11 years old that I started to become more interested in Catholicism and began praying and doing readings outside of what my own family was doing together. So every night I would kneel down at the foot of my bed and pull out a little prayer book that I had gotten for my first communion and it had a little bookmark thing that little bookmark ribbon that went in it and I remember I had a special page that I would always keep marked that had the nighttime prayer section And I would kneel down and go and say the prayer. And then at one point, the prayer had you think and send out individual thoughts and prayers to anyone that you thought needed them. And I can remember that I would take that time and I would think about people in my family or friends that I thought needed prayers 
I would send up little thoughts, and this is how I would say it in my head. I would send up thoughts um, into the air, and they would find their way to the person who needed to hear them. And then I would climb up the ladder of my little bunk bed, and I would look on the wall, and hanging on the wall was a little mounted um, plaque that read, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And I would look at that, and that would kind of be my last little prayer before I got into bed and went to sleep. At school, we would wear our red and white checkered uniforms, have our monthly school-wide masses, we had religion class, and we prayed at the beginning and end of every day. But that was all stuff that was required for me by the school, and not something that I would say that I went out of my way to do, or would have gone out of my way to do, had it not been just part of my life growing up. When I was in the fifth grade, I remember I signed up to be an altar server at my local community church. Um, This was something that I think my parents wanted me to do. They had signed up to be Eucharistic ministers, and my other older sister, Erica, she signed up to also be an altar server, and I think they thought if the whole family was had a special role or thing that they were doing as part of the Mass that we would feel closer and more like part of the community. Um, We didn't always go to the same church. We floated around to a couple different places and none of them really had the right fit. And so this was the first few years we'd been at this church in Duval called Holy Innocence. And we were trying, I think my parents were really trying to make it feel right. And so having all of us have a part, a role that we were playing, I think was their attempt to try and establish us into that community. And I would say it, it kind of worked. I I made a few friends when I was altar serving, and there was definitely some people that I was more happy to see on some weeks versus other people. <laughs> but the bottom line is, it never really felt like something that was my choice. It was something we did as a family, and because it was something we did as a family, it was special and important, but I feel like that was the only reason. I didn't feel really connected to the people that we were with, and I didn't feel very connected to the space. Something about it felt wrong, and at this point, I couldn't put my finger on it. It wasn't until a few years later that I began to really understand why it didn't feel right. The year is 2014. I'm now a junior in high school, and all I'm thinking about my first period math quiz and getting home and getting back into bed at the end of the day. When I come into my homeroom classroom, nothing seems out of the ordinary. Kids are talking and laughing. Some have their heads down on the desk trying to get a few minutes of sleep. 
before their first classes. Then my homeroom teacher, Mr. Guzman, steps up to the front of the class and says he has an announcement. He tells us that our vice principal, Mr. Zmuda, was fired for marrying his partner over the summer. It's so quiet you can hear a pin drop. And then the questions start. Kids ask things like, how did they find out? And I remember thinking, why is that the first question that everyone is wondering? Everyone was asking and thinking and gossiping about which teacher had ratted out Mr. Zamuda, who had found out and told the archdiocese what had happened to get this horrible thing to happen. After the announcement was made, it was like a ripple had been sent through the entire school. You could tell that there was a change in the atmosphere, and you could tell that everybody knew what had happened. When I went to my math class, I could already hear a commotion coming from downstairs in the cafeteria. It sounded like there were microphones and people talking through speakers. My math teacher told us if we left that we wouldn't get a chance to make up our quiz. She told us that if we left, we would get a zero. I finished that quiz faster than I have finished any quiz in my entire math career. And as soon as I was done, me and my friend bolted out of the classroom and went downstairs to find a huge sit-in with hundreds of students crammed into the cafeteria, passing around a microphone and expressing their outrage over what had happened. LGBT, LGBT students were sharing their feelings of isolation and betrayal that this community that they had been promised they were welcomed in had so blatantly turned their backs on them and shown them that they were not willing to give them the same opportunities and rights that they were willing to give everybody else. There was kids crying, there was yelling, and everyone was taking videos of their phone on their phones because everyone knew this was a big deal. The sit-in, while was mostly student-led, was being closely monitored by our dean of students, who came in around lunchtime and told us that we needed to move to the gym so that the middle school could eat and have their lunch period. We didn't want to cause too much upset with the school, so we complied and we moved to the gym where our numbers continued to grow and we continued to share our stories and offer support to one another in this time of frustration and fear. Uh, at this point, I remember people had gotten into contact with the local news and began to spread that the, the news vans were waiting at the end of the driveway, and but they weren't allowed to come onto school property. And so all at once, we decided to go to them. And it was a very powerful and moving scene to see this entire auditorium of people, of students, just collectively stand and move and all walk out the front doors. And we walked down the stairs, through the parking lot, 
and all the way out to the street and met three news vans with video cameras. And as we marched, we held up the sign for love, agape, and tried to remind ourselves why we were doing this. I remember the seniors were trying to tell the freshmen, this isn't skipping class. This isn't funny. This isn't a joke. This is serious. You know, we're not doing this to get out of school. We're doing this because it's important. And they made sure to spread the message that we were taking this seriously and it wasn't just going to be a joke to anyone. It just so happened that this day, that the day that all of this went down, was also the last day that we were in school before our winter break. Over the break, my high school, Eastside Catholic, did everything they could to try and justify their decision to let Mr. Zamuda go. In their release statement, they said that Mr. Zamuda signed a contract when he became an educator at Eastside Catholic that stated he would uphold and practice Catholic values. And by marrying his partner, he had violated that contract. This was a big turning point for me in terms of examining my own identity and starting to separate myself from the Catholic Church and understanding the process and the work that that required since so much of my identity had been ingrained with the Catholic organization since such an early age. I felt deceived. I felt like I had been told nothing but lies because now I had blatant proof sitting right in front of me that the Catholic Church was willing to go against its own fundamental core ideologies just to uphold quote-unquote traditional values. So where did that leave me? How did I determine what was right and what was wrong for myself when I had been so immersed in this message from such a young age? It didn't seem like it was going to be that difficult. I didn't really have any friends that I was that close to at the time who identified as LGBT. I had some friends that were questioning and some that were too scared to even think about the possibility that they might be. And so it was something that I really neglected. It was a concept that I thought, this has nothing to do with me right now, or maybe ever, and so I won't worry about it. Until I had to worry about it. A few months after the Mr. Zamuda incident, my older sister Erica, who had been staying home for the past couple months from college because she had been struggling emotionally and academically, she came into my room and sat at the edge of my bed. Her eyes were filled with worry and hesitance. She told me after much, much pause and silence that she didn't feel right in her body. She didn't feel like herself. There was dissonance between who she felt she was on the inside and who she was expressed on the outside. She wanted to change how she expressed herself. She wanted to change her gender identity. This was a concept that was so, so brand new to my family and the ideology that we'd been raised in that she was terrified 
to tell anyone other than me at that time. I don't remember exactly what I was thinking that night when Erica told me everything that she was feeling inside. I know that I felt frustrated and sad that it was so hard for me to make this transition. I wanted it to be easy. I wanted more than anything for her to come into my room and tell me this fundamental truth about her identity and who she was and for me to be able to tell her that everything was going to be okay. But the truth was I didn't know that everything was going to be okay and I don't think that she did either. I remember feeling like I was going through the five stages of grief because it did at some points feel a little bit like a loss. I grew up with an older brother and now I was going to have an older sister and I wasn't sure how this was going to affect a relationship or the dynamic between us as siblings. I didn't want to lose anything and I was scared that the change would mean losing something. And I was so wrong. And it took a long time and a lot of patience and love and communication in order to understand that this person, my sister, was never ever going to change. And the only thing that was going to change was her happiness. That if she was able to do this, if she was able to be who she knew she was, then she wouldn't feel this deep sadness and sense of not belonging. This feeling that she was an intruder in her own body. And she could never escape that feeling. As long as she presented as the gender that she was born as, she was never going to feel like she could be herself. And there were so many barriers that needed to be broken down in order for her to achieve this harmony. And I'm sad to say that our family is still one of those barriers. I could tell that Erica knew that this was going to be difficult, but I don't think either of us anticipated just how hard it was going to be to tell our parents. When she came out to our parents, there was a lot of anger and confusion and yelling. There was denial, and I can remember them telling Erica that this was probably just a phase that she had picked up from her friends in college, and that she only felt this way because of how much time she had been spending with them. I remember my mom saying to me one time, why couldn't she just have been gay? It would have been so much easier if she was just gay. Because at that point, my parents saw themselves as somewhat progressive in the eyes of the Catholic Church. They believed themselves to be forward-thinking to the point where, if Erica had been gay and not trans, that would have been completely fine. My dad would tell Erica things like, 
You know your mom stays at the wake at night crying over you and would say things to make Erica feel like this was her fault. My mom would cry because she knew how much harder this would make Erica's life. My mom once told me that she felt sad because already things were hard for Erica because she was born with Asperger's syndrome. And now this was another thing that was going to make her different from everybody else. One thing that I can remember my parents being really anxious about was how they would eventually break the news of Erica's transition to the rest of our family and friends. Because of our connection and our involvement with the Catholic Church, a lot of our friends and family also identified as Catholic. And so we knew that to bring up a subject that was known to be controversial within the Catholic Church was going to be different for every person and we never knew who was going to be on our side and who was going to support us and who was going to be staying on the Catholic Church's side and see Erica as deviant and wrong. We wanted to protect her from this, but we also wanted to protect ourselves because we didn't want to be held in that judgment. Whenever anybody asked where Erica was, using Erica's old name, it always opened up the possibility for having this conversation of, oh, actually, Erica goes by Erica now, you know, and feeling like We had to make that decision every single time of like, is this a person that we are going to keep in our life who we have deemed worthy to, you know, try and have this big talk with, or is it going to blow up in our face if we try? And the fear of it blowing up in our face, I think, is what held back my family for so long of just instead of choosing to love and support Erica and pick her over everything else, that decision became clouded by this fear of not fitting in and not aligning with an identity that we had formed so early on. It took over a year for my parents to switch from the male to female pronouns. And the only reason that they finally made the switch was because Erica wasn't going to come home for Thanksgiving. And I knew the reason she wasn't coming home is because she wanted to come home to a place where she was loved and accepted. And until she could do that, this was never going to be a home for her. And it It made me feel so incredibly gutted and wrenched to think that my older sister, my role model, the person that I looked up to all throughout growing up was now feeling like she didn't belong in her own home and it was our fault. We weren't making it a place where she could belong. I had just left for college 
and was still trying to understand and accept Erica's transition. I had been in denial for a long time, not because I didn't accept transgender or the idea that somebody could be transgender, but because I wasn't ready to let go of my brother. And I was still holding this fear that things were going to be different. But while I was away for my first semester of college, I realized that it wasn't that difficult to start talking about her using she and her. And it wasn't that hard to start saying Erica instead of her old name. It started to become like second nature and just talking about her when she wasn't around, it made it easier to begin to understand her new identity and recognize it. So when I came home and was ready to come home for Thanksgiving break, I told my family, hey, if we don't do this, if we don't change the pronouns that we're using and respect her identity and change the name, then she's never going to feel like she belongs here or is loved by us. And I think that if we made the effort to try and use her correct name and pronouns, it would show her that we have not abandoned her and we love her and we will always choose her over the anything, anything else. My family is still in process and working towards becoming more open-minded and loving of Erica's identity. And in the past few years, we've come so, so far. I'm very, very proud of Erica and everything that she has endured in order to get to where she is today. She is living with her girlfriend in Chicago in their own apartment, and every day I know that she wakes up happy because she feels like she belongs. So how do we begin to detangle the complexity of our own identity and understand that there are times when it can be in conflict with itself. How do we address this conflict and come to a resolution that leaves us feeling not less of a whole? The first steps that I took were identifying my core values and beliefs and understanding how these values affected the way that I treated and respected the people around me. The funny thing is, a lot of these values did come from being raised in a Catholic church and taught this message that all are welcome and to give help to those in need and turn the other cheek. These messages, I still feel, dictate a lot of my actions and the way that I feel and my connection with people is largely based on this sort of Catholic mindset of being in a community. Although I no longer practice Catholicism, I still believe that there are ways that faith and identity can live in harmony with one another, despite the presence of discrimination within the faith institutions. After doing a little research, I was able to find the presence of some communities whose emphasis is to help those with conflicting identities. One of these communities is called Dignity, and Dignity is interested in helping a person maintain both their sexual identity and religious commitments.
Dignity is not only focused on providing a safe space for people with these conflicting identities. It also is interested in creating reformation within the Catholic Church itself, so that the need for these communities won't be as significant. Beverly Tatum says that integrating one's past, present, and future into a cohesive, unified sense of self is a complex task that begins in adolescence and continues for a lifetime. We are always in process. We are always examining and questioning and thinking critically about who we are and who we want to be. And I will continue this journey and I will continue to examine the areas in my life in which I feel like my identity is not in harmony. And when I find those areas, I will do everything in my power to reach out to those closest to me, to reach out to those who share my values and figure out the path that I should take that reflects who I believe I am. Thank you for listening to my podcast about the complex relationship between faith and identity. Special thanks to Kristen French, my professor who provided me with guidance throughout this process and endless patience and support. Thank you for an amazing class, and I wish you the best.